All right, welcome back to another episode of the Laravel Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Matt Stauffer, and I got two other hosts with me. Guys, can you introduce yourselves? And Jeffrey. And I'm Taylor Otwell. This is the 1st of February, the beginning of Black History Month in the U.S., and uh, the beginning of Laravel Podcast post-Laravel 5.4. Uh, the release just went out last week, and uh, a few of the features that we've been hinting at here, Dusk and Mix and a few other things were released, um, and so we're going to cover those a little bit. But before we get into the deeper dives there, let's talk about a few um, happenings in the world of Laravel. So Laracon US is 100% sold out. Do you have a wait list already? Uh, not officially. I have to get that up on the website. We will have a wait list, but I already have people emailing me begging to get on the wait list. <laughs> um, this is definitely the fastest it's sold out. I mean, it's the fastest tickets were selling way faster than last year. I think a part of that is just because, you know, New York is a metropolitan area with about 10 million people in the immediate vicinity. So it's just really, uh, you know, sold really quick. And, uh, I only actually left about 10 seats empty because, you know, we have to have some wiggle room for someone that's running the live blog. So a videographer, a photographer, some, something like that. Um, but yeah, there's been a, there's already been two or three cancellations. So there will at least be a few tickets that go out on the wait list. I don't think there will be dozens of tickets on the wait list, but yeah, I should have that up this week. Okay. I was going to ask how many it's been in previous years. So we're not looking, you're, we're not looking at 50 people on the wait list. No, yet. I mean, there you, could, you, you, by the time couple. the conference rolls around, there might be 10 or 15 cancellations. Okay. Um, so, and I think that we, we've talked about this before, but it's a combination of, there's just a lot of people in New York proper who are more likely to go. And that's a lot of people, but also the fact that it's more of a destination for other people in the U S to want to go, but also it's more accessible overseas, right? Cause yeah, like you way can fly more right into, yeah, cool. Um, so another announcement type thing, um, this isn't new, but it felt new to me. So I figured if it feels new to me, it probably is to at least some other people. Uh, Jeffrey, you have some free series. We've talked about Viewcasts in the past, which is basically like, a you know, it's a domain name with a clever name that links to, you know, basically a free series that everyone in the public should know about. But you also have LaravelFromScratch.com. Uh, I didn't know about this. So could you tell us about what it is? And yeah, uh, it's exactly what it says on the 10. So Laravel from scratch is kind of an interesting series I do because it has to be current. So like if, if you're trying to learn Laravel and the series is based on like Laravel 5.2, you're going to get really frustrated, right? Because the routes file doesn't match up in the video with where it is uh, on when you install it yourself. So it gets really tough. And I don't really want to tell people, we'll just install version 5.2 of the framework for that series. Right. Uh, and because they're beginners, they can't just easily compensate the way maybe somebody a bit more seasoned would. So that series, maybe more than anything really has to be updated every single year. And I hate doing it. Like, I really hate doing it. It's the same <laughs> 101 stuff. Uh, but I've, I've redone it like four times at this point. Uh, I just redid it for 5.4. So now at this point, um, Laravel 5.4 has been out for about a week, but I have the What's New in 5.4 series that covers, I think, like 90% of what's new. Uh, and then the updated Laravel from scratch series. So yeah, the cool thing is you can give that domain domain to your your coworkers or your siblings and it will always point to the most current version of mm -hmm. the series do you keep the old versions up still though yeah i keep them up i just archive them and then mm -hmm. i uh reroute the laravel from scratch domain to the current to the current url so cool yeah, it's a good one That's to remember really nice. 
Yeah, we've said this a couple times before in the podcast, but there's a few different great ways to learn Laravel, and we're hoping that if it's a book, it's Laravel up and running. If it's a video series, it's going to be Laravel from scratch, but also just go read the docs and also, you know, go dive into the source codes. These are all kind of valuable tools and everybody learns different ways. So we want to make sure there's a lot of options available to everybody. Yep. Sure. Um, yeah. So Laravel 5.4 just came out um, and it's seemed to be positive re- response. I think it's one of the first versions in a while that has had, I think, maybe zero drama. Um, which is, you know, fun. It's nice to just kind of release it and see it go well. And I want one of the things I want to ask is each of you kind of has responsibility for two of the big name features. Um, so Taylor, you were, you, you know, Dusk was your baby and and Jeffrey Mix was yours. So could you guys tell me a little bit about what has the response been? Um, and also, are there any gotchas or ways where you think that people maybe have, um, have you noticed people consistently having trouble learning it where you want to say, well, hey, maybe, you know, watch out for this pitfall or change your thinking this way and it might make it easier to move on to it. Taylor? Yeah, I think the reception has been pretty positive um, overall, and uh, which is good. Uh, with Dusk, which is the part I worked on, I think the biggest gotcha people have run into is just sort of tweaking their brain to think in browser test terms. So like some people might be surprised when they try to use the database transactions trait uh, that would normally, you know, start or uh, begin and roll back a transaction during your test. That doesn't work in Dusk or really any other browser testing solution because, you know, it actually fires up a real browser and it doesn't know anything about the transaction you just started in your PHP code that you're writing because it's just like you opened Chrome and started clicking around manually. And it's hard for people to think about that, that it's the exact same as just opening Chrome on your browser and manually doing it yourself. Other, You just told the computer to do it instead. So just kind of thinking uh, like that, rewiring your brain to to think like that. Um, but yeah, that's about it really. Overall, I think it's been pretty good. Um, I saw on Twitter, someone's already got it working on Travis CI using a uh, phantom JS and stuff like that. So nice. It looks like people are already, you know, playing with it pretty seriously. There's already been a handful of pull requests to fix stuff, add stuff, uh, things like that, that people needed. So yeah, I think people seem to be happy with it, but you know, it's still early. So I'm sure, um, things will continue to get tweaked over the next few months as well. I saw on Twitter some guy even hooked it up to pay his rent or, or pay some bill or something. Yeah, yeah cool. it seems like that was done before 5.4 even released. It was like during the beta. Yeah, hooked it up to open a website and click around and pay his uh, bill, which I have a few bills that have to be paid manually like that that I, that I probably could do uh, with Dusk. But I ha- I'm, haven't quite geeked out that hard on it yet. Still cool. As for mix, yeah, mix is mix is pretty good. There were a few hiccups, uh, like I was telling you guys before the podcast, a few hiccups related to Windows users, which which can be really tough. Uh, like I was saying earlier, the problem with some of these Node apps is everyone's setup is a little bit unique. So it's like one person can have this version of Node, but that version of NPM, or they don't have this installed, or they're on Windows or Linux or a Mac, and it's like you're trying to deal with five hundred different specific situations. Um, and it's very, very difficult to to test all of that. But I think the Windows stuff was was ironed out within a couple of days. Uh, some of the requests have already been implemented. So, uh, I, I did notice like one little gotcha if you come from Laravel Elixir is understanding that it's a little bit different. So Laravel Elixir is built on Gulp and it's very much like a task runner. So it's the equivalent of saying like, do this and then do that and then do this. So if you think of like a series of pipes, do this and then pipe the output to this and then to this. Uh, Webpack's a little bit different. Basically, the way Webpack works is it's not a series of tasks. So it's all going to be compiled all at once. 
And then when you create your webpack.mix.js file, that's kind of like your configuration layer on top of it. And then once that's done, Webpack just executes. So it's a little bit different than do this step and then this step and then this step. But um, the power you get in exchange is pretty substantial. So I think it's very much worth it just as long as you understand some of the some of the differences. But yeah, it's going well. I just pushed a, a pretty big update a few days ago that fixed tons of bugs, added a bunch of new things. So um, it's, it's going pretty well. I'm migrating Lyricast over to Mix right now. Um, and in the process, uh, just as an aside, I'm upgrading Vue from Vue 1 to Vue 2. So that's what I've been working on all day today. Um, it's 90% done, but just for anyone curious, if you need to update, it probably took me about three to four hours to do. Um, but I, I will say to their credit, there's this, uh, this has nothing to do with Mix, but there's this little uh, command line app you can install for Vue, and it will scan all your JavaScript and then output like 50 different steps that you need to do. So it'll say like, here, you're using interpolation, but you just need to use VBind instead. So you basically just go through that list, updating one file at a time. Um, so it's pretty seamless, but three or four hours worth of work if, if anyone listening to this wants to update. I mean, Lurcast is a pretty decent sized site. So three or four hours for upgrading something that's not just, it's not a toy app. You know, it's a legit website. That's a pretty big deal for it to be that yeah, fast. Yeah, I would say for a versions. toy app, you can do it pretty quick. And it also kind of depends on how you structured things. Um, I had a few key areas where I was using things like um, two-way syncing, and that gets a little tricky when you upgrade. Um, but a lot of it's just updating interpolation. A lot of it's uh, you need to set up a global event dispatcher, which you can do like in five seconds. So like if you're doing this dot broadcast or this dot dispatch, you'd have to update all of those references for your view to upgrade. But yeah, that, that's a complete aside, but kind of interesting. Um, are there any contexts in which you think someone would choose to use Elixir in a Greenfield project? Or would you just say Elixir is really sticking around for people who have it on an old project and Mix is going to basically be it going forward? Yeah, for a Greenfield project, I would always use Mix. Uh, Elixir can be useful, uh, again, kind of the way it's structured, but also like if you're working on legacy, a lot of legacy JavaScript where you have a bunch of, a bunch of uh, jQuery plugins, that kind of stuff can get pretty tricky with Webpack. Um, we, we offer a lot of things out of the box to help with that. But again, like some of these old legacy uh, libraries and plugins, they weren't really built with, with something like Webpack in mind. They, they assume a lot of global objects. So that can be a little tricky. Um, and Elixir isn't, is a little more uh, generous more with how... Yeah, yeah, it's a little more forgiving versus something like Mix. But for anything brand new, absolutely, I would use Mix. Cool. That makes sense. Um, so another thing that I had been, um, so I, I went to the, the podcast topic suggestion tool. Um, and one of the most common requests we've gotten there is, uh, how to do package development. And it's something we haven't really talked about that much in the past. And honestly, when we develop packages at Titan, they're so simple that it's, we're really basically just writing some PHP classes and throwing them up in composer. But I know that there's a lot of context, especially when you build something that is maybe a little more tightly integrated with Laravel that, um, you really need to kind of get some tooling set up around that. Uh, Taylor, you tweeted recently that you were doing package development and you loved working with Orchestra Test Bench. And neither Jeffrey or I have a lot of experience there. So we figured, could you just tell us and the podcast uh, listeners just what is it and how does it work and what does it bring that you don't have without it? Yeah, so Orchestra Test Bench is a package that is pretty must-have, I feel like, if you're building something that really closely integrates with Laravel, like uses a lot of Laravel features. Um, 
some people call it, you know, coupled to Laravel, but I prefer to think of exclusive to Laravel is how I like to word it. But right. Um, anyway, yeah, I'm working on a package that uses a lot of, of features of Laravel, like queues, database, Redis, events, you know, and I, I wanted to write tests that felt like they were useful. And a lot of that is not having to just over mock everything to the point where my tests are just basically useless. So I wanted to be able to actually connect to a database, actually put jobs on a queue, actually talk to Redis. And so how Orchestra TestBench works is you install a TestBench like in your acquire dev, you know, dependencies of your package. And within Orchestra Test, TestBench, it actually has like a stub Laravel application within it. You don't see it like it's in your vendor directory, but that's what it's setting up behind the scenes. And then you extend um, the orchestra test case class and it has methods, two methods really that you override to define what extra service providers you want to load. So like you load in your own packages service provider. And then there's a method that's called to define any configuration you need where you can just call config set and set up any extra configuration your package needs like in the Laravel config files, so to speak. So I just did those two things, you know, configured a database connection to SQLite, configured a um, Redis connection, and then you can just use Laravel like normal in your package tests. Like I can do event fire, I can do Q push, I can do DB, whatever, git, and it all works just like I was in a Laravel application, but I'm not. I'm just in my package that's not installed into Laravel right now. So it makes it feel, it makes your testing of your package feel a lot like you were testing it just within a dummy application, which is really nice. And it lets me write actually better tests, I feel like, because I can actually test like the actual public interface of my package that actually does real things. Um, and it gives me room to refactor because everything's not mocked to pieces where if I change one line of implementation, I have to change all this test mock code. Um, so... I just think it lets me test at the right level of abstraction for the package so that my tests feel really solid. Um, so yeah, I really like it. I haven't had any significant issues with it. Um, and so if you're, if you're writing a package that works that way or that uses those kind of features and you're really struggling with, you know, with feeling like your tests are pretty brittle, I think it's a really good package to install. Um, and then I'll, when I'm building a package, I actually set up my package directories um, like a Laravel app. So like in this package I'm working on right now, I have a um, resources directory. I have a database directory with some migrations, um, you know, and then I might have like a jobs directory for commands or whatever. So a lot of times my packages look like little Laravel applications. And um, yeah, so check that package out if you haven't, because I think it's really cool. And it's something I hadn't tried until just last week. Um, and it's been around for a little while. Yeah, that's especially interesting to me because I, I think everyone's run into that trap where it's like you're trying to test this package and you're writing tests, but you have to mock everything out. And then then you run into that trap where it's like every single time you, you change a couple lines of production code, you have to adjust the tests, which just shows you like the tests are complete garbage yeah. because they're, you know, if you have to rewrite the test every time you change the the package code, then, you know, you're not getting any of the benefits of it whatsoever. Yeah. It's just way, way too brittle. Yeah. I'm not, if I'm not able to refactor without making sure my tests still pass, like what's the point of anything really? Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's funny. We actually, for one of our packages, if maybe quicksand, we actually built a repo that was just a Laravel app that included quicksand that had a whole bunch of tests. And I know that's like not how you're supposed to do it, but it was the easiest way to do exactly what you're talking about, which is write non-brittle tests. So we could have clearly used 
orchestra test bench in that context i didn't even know it so we'll probably go do that now so yeah i could have used awesome. it for a few things you know over the years i could have used it for a scout uh hooking into eloquent i could have used it probably for spark because it uses obviously a lot of laravel stuff um so yeah i'll definitely reach for it in the future if i ever have that situation that is super cool oh well, as always this will be in the show notes just go to laravel podcast com. all right next uh, topic on the agenda GitLab. <laughs> so it seems really terrible. I mean, it's interesting because I'm used to So the situation with GitLab is somebody ran something and ran it in the wrong directory and deleted all their production data, basically, right? Is that what happened? Sounds like it. I'd, li- I'd like to hear more because I only scanned it like the quick 30 seconds. I, I only skimmed. I saw something like he thought he was on his, he was on production or, or he thought he was local or something. And then he dropped 15 gigs worth of data. That's about the extent of, of what I heard about it. Yeah, basically ran an RM command on the command line. And he realized it really quick, I think, and tried to cancel out the um, oh, really? you know, the command, but it already deleted quite a bit of data. But then also, wasn't there something like their backups weren't working either? They said they had like five layers of backups. They all didn't work. Yeah. Is that right? I don't know. I, that's, what I, that's what I read. Yeah, I was I was skimming as well, but what I read in that there's one kind of big tweet that Kona went around was basically saying we had backups running up to um, S3, but turns out there was nothing getting backed up there. We had another backup running; it turns out it never run. And then you know it's just like thing after thing. Oh yeah, we've got five levels of redundancy, and literally all five levels were not useful. And I think like the the primary way they were able to recover is because somebody happened to manually run a backup six hours before. And and again, I've this is. Each of us on this call has only just skimmed it. I thought one of us would have might have actually obsessed over it. But what I, what is most interesting to me is that I expected everyone to just get up in arms to, you know, see GitLab with flame emoji all over it and to see the great migration back from GitLab to GitHub or maybe Bitbucket steps in and kind of tries to capture people or something like that. And instead, I've only seen grace and empathy consistently from all sorts of different areas around the internet saying, oh man, really sucks for them. I haven't seen a single person say, I've lost my whole day because of GitLab or screw GitLab. Have you seen that? It's crazy. I wonder if, it's, it's, I wonder if part of the reason we haven't is just the nature of what the product, like, you know, if you push something up to GitLab, you usually still have it locally. Right, um, right. And it would only really matter if you pushed it up within that six hour window, I guess, and then completely deleted it off your local hard drive and no one else had cloned it down or... That's a good point. So... Yeah. It's not like it's like a digital ocean where you actually lose production data or something like that. Yeah, that would be a very different situation. That's a really good point. But I think with them, like, I think all of us can just relate to it so much. We've probably yeah. all done something like that in the past where you just deleted tons of data or, or at the very least you wasted a day's worth of work because of some command you ran. Um, so yeah. I think yeah. everyone's immediate instinct is just compassion and feeling bad for the guy. You know, yeah. he had a really bad week. I remember just the other day, I, I messaged Jeffrey on Telegram, and, uh, you know, Jeffrey has that nah command, nah or nah, uh, N-A-H on his command line that basically aliases to sort of resetting the state of your Git uh, project. So, like, if you're making changes, it just sort of, like, deletes all the crap you just did. Um, so, I have that on my machine as well, and I got pretty antsy with it the other day and actually wiped out, like, an hour's worth of work on this package I've been working on, which was pretty frustrating, actually. And I kind of sat like stunned for probably a solid two or three minutes. Oh, man. <laughs> and like, I tried to, that. um, I tried so to go into my, you know, dot git directory, like lost and found and try to find stuff. But 
anyway, I just ended up kind of redoing what I had done. Yeah, I think everyone has had that at one time or another, that slow realization that you've lost all the work you did. I've done it before, like like a once again, a, a remove with recursive force. I think everyone's done that at, at some time or another. I, I had done one where it's, it's not, so there's that one, but the good thing with that one is it's like the answer is commit more often. And usually if you're kind of been programming as long as us, you lose a couple hours of work. So it is a bummer, but it's in your brain fresh. But like the times when I've lost the most is where you do a merge wrong or something like that. And you lose like an entire branch and it could be weeks or months. And I remember spending like a day and a half learning all about the ref log and how to get stuff out of it. And it's crazy how much stuff that you think is gone forever is still just sitting in the ref log, just waiting for you to recover back out if you're willing to put the work. Yeah, in that is the cool thing about Git. It, it technically is really, really hard to lose something um, if you've committed it before. But yeah, you then have to research for a couple hours to figure out. All right, how do I get that exact data back? Yep. Um, the the comparison comparison I was making with GitLab is the difference between how people responded to that versus Linode. And I I it was I was like, well, why did people not have compassion with Linode? And it's exactly what you said, Taylor. It was just because like. GitLab goes down and you're like, okay, well, you know, I might lose some productivity. You know, Linode goes down and your boss and your coworkers and your clients and your customers are all now screaming at you. Yeah, and you're and losing it's just money. A night and day difference about the impact on you. So you're, it's, it's a lot easier to have compassion in other people when you're not, you know, under the fire. So, all right. Um, I tweeted recently about a friend of mine. I wish I could remember who it was so I can apologize to them and say, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus for this recommendation, but somebody recommended Rich Dad Poor Dad to me. And, um, and so I just went out and bought it and I read the first 45 pages and I was super frustrated with it. And I was like, this guy, you know, he's so frustrating to me. And I ended up basically just tossing it. And thankfully a lot of people just said, well, you know what, here's the two lessons from rich dad, poor dad. And I think they were something like, uh, make your money work for you. So like passive income and your house is not an asset. I, I get those. Those make sense. I mean, I've owned a house long enough to know that house is very much a liability, not an asset. Um, but it made me think about the fact that, um, each of us have kind of talked about money a little bit before, just as I've been talking to y'all and stuff like that. And I wanted to see, do you have any, like any either pro tips or like intro base level ideas or books or teachers or something you'd recommend? Like if somebody asked you and said, I'm just getting started and I just need to know, you know, the basics about how to manage my money well or invest well or budget well, what would you, is there one thing you'd recommend to them? Hmm, I don't have a lot of money insights. I don't necessarily either. What, what I would recommend, I, I, I'm very into common sense saving and common sense investment, almost like when it comes to programming, how we talk about uh, some of these these um, architecture styles that are so incredibly complicated. Um, mm -hmm. We try to focus on more simple solutions that, that make a bit more sense. I think the exact same thing is true for saving and investing. Um, I, I once had a financial advisor I was working with years ago, and I realized he was doing this stuff that was so, so complicated. And I ended up just more or less firing him, uh, for lack of better words, because maybe it worked, but my instinct and from everything I've read is like, you're not going to win trying to do all of this fancy stuff where you're leveraging and you're getting loans here so that you can invest there. And I can pay 3% on this credit card so that I can earn 8% in the stock market. All of that stuff is just complete garbage, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, I'm a big fan of just simple, common sense saving. It doesn't make sense to be investing in the stock market or buying an index fund if you have these credit cards that are 20% interest, right? So just focusing on the basics, yeah. um, paying off your credit cards before you do other stupid stuff. Uh, and then, once again, the personal finance Reddit thread, it, I think is really good just to read every single day. I still do it uh, yeah. at this point. Um, a lot, of, yeah. There's, it, it's good to get like the absolute beginners asking their questions, but then you also see people who have 
been doing it for years and years, asking for advice and helping out. So that's where I would direct people. Of course, there's the books like um, I see you have written here, The the Total Money Makeover. That's uh, Dave Ramsey's book. He has the, um, what is his his radio show called? Uh, I guess it's just The Dave Ramsey Show, huh? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, fun fact, I used to listen to that all the time. Uh, when, I was, oh, yeah. when I was a kid, I, I delivered pizza at Papa John's. And I was always kind of into money as a kid, so I would listen to that while I delivered pizza, and I would get to the point where it's like, his advice is very, very specific, so you can get to a point where you can predict what his reply will be before he even gives <laughs> it. Um, and there's some annoying things about Dave. There's a lot of annoying yeah. things about Dave, but um, that, that's certainly uh, some good common sense advice that he gives. I yeah. think he gets hammered actually quite a bit. A lot of people hammer him because certain pieces of advice he'll give, they'll say like, well, you'd make more money if you did this. So this is stupid advice. Like uh, one of the things he recommends is if you're paying off credit cards, pay them off according to the least balance to the most balance. So if you have a credit, if you have three credit cards and one has $500 on it, one has 2000 and one has 5000 he recommends pay off the $500 one. And then when you're done with that, tackle the next one and then tackle the next one. And people hammer him all the time because they say, well, it's much smarter if you tackle the lowest interest credit card first. Yeah. That way you're paying that one off more quickly. Uh, but I actually agree with him on this point because his, his thinking is it's much more about the mindset, right? So if you can knock out that little credit card really quickly, it kind of puts you in the state of mind of, of getting things done. Whereas if you just tackle like the, the big credit card with the lower interest rate, you're never going to pay it off and you're going to get disillusioned by it and that kind of stuff. So I think most of his advice is actually pretty good. What specifically did you not like about the book you read? Uh, I there's first of all, in general, there was just this kind of like, I don't know, this schmaltzy like storytelling style where it's just kind of like, here, let me tell you the and like, but then it started getting into the guy who he so it's it's called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. But turns out one of the guys is not actually his dad. He's actually the dad of his friend, but because this dad of his friend taught him more about money, he's now just calling him his dad. And it's just, it, and he's kind of a little bit condescending towards his birth dad. But then eventually, like the, the dad with the money starts being condescending, like, do you see all these people who work for me? Do you want to be like them just waiting in line to ask for some money for somebody? And it's almost always like women and people of color who are sitting and waiting. And then he says all these condescending things about people in poverty. And then there's just one statement. And I took a picture of it. And it is the main cause of poverty or financial struggle is fear and ignorance, not the economy or the government or the rich. It's self-inflicted fear and ignorance that keep people trapped. So that's actually the same problem I have with Dave Ramsey, who I love. I think Dave Ramsey, I was, I'll go into Dave Ramsey in a second. But the same problem I have is, is that you've got these you know, like, so the, the author Rich Dad, Poor Dad is not white, but it's this majority culture people whose people and families are not in poverty and they are not dealing with the, num the, the primary things that cause poverty, at least in the U.S., saying that they understand white people in poverty. And what they're really saying is, I understand what it is that put me in poverty at some point. You know, like I understand when I was in my worst, it was as a result of this. And then they just generalize that across the entire populace. And so it's not as if like what they're saying is wrong. It's the fact that they're saying it and then assuming they can apply it to everybody that drives me nuts. Mm -hmm. with, with Dave Ramsey, I just roll my eyes at him and then I keep taking his advice. With this book, I was 45 pages in and I still hadn't got anything useful and I was already annoyed with him. So when he said that, I was like, screw this, <laughs> screw this. I just, and I actually asked, I was like, should I keep reading? You know, I was like willing to kind of give it a try. And then I was like, no, 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 don't worry about it. So I, I stopped. Um, 
But I agree, man. I think Dave Ramsey, I didn't grow up listening to him or anything like that. And when some of my friends gave me Total Money Makeover in college, they're like, you're going to get annoyed with him a little bit. Push through it. I said, okay, cool. And I got annoyed with him. Yes. And I pushed through <laughs> it. And man, everything you said, it's, it is really brilliant stuff. I mean, the, the primary concepts that it, I came away with are like, I, I don't remember what all of them are, but one of them is this cheesy thing he says called gazelle intensity. And really what it means, and then this, there's another piece of it, it's like, live like no one else now so you can live like no one else later. And really, like, the primary pitch there is like, you're going to make decisions while you get out of debt and get financially stable that are going to make it, like, awkward or uncomfortable or difficult. And you need to recognize that are those are temporary short-term decisions that are going to enable you to have more freedom and flexibility and financial stability in the future. But if you're not willing to be countercultural right now, you're not going to be any different than everybody else. Like everybody else is all in the same situation because they did the same as thing as everybody else. So you need to be, so that was one, like permission to like be weird or eat peanut butter and jelly or not go out on that trip, what else it ends up being. But then the next one was the debt snowball thing that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and then, um, and then it was like the whole, you know, get an emergency savings account first get $2,000 emergency savings, then get, I think it was like six months emergency savings. And then after that, I don't even remember if he says anything, but after that, for me, it's max out your 401k basically. Mm -hmm. And like, I, and you know, past that, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I'm sure there's stuff about investing and all kind of stuff, but like that foundation, those first kind of steps, I mean, I came out of, you know, I worked for a nonprofit coming out of college. So I went from like having a decent amount of money tucked away to being in like a lot of credit card debt because nonprofits don't pay very much money. And so like that was kind of when I started getting this stuff and we were able to get out of debt really, really, really fast and get emergency savings really fast because of the stuff we learned there. So I would I would highly recommend getting total money makeover uh, and just kind of be willing to be annoyed or maybe not annoyed with it a little bit. It's really solid stuff. That's that's really the only money advice I have. It's really hard not to get annoyed by him. I haven't listened to any of these people. Yeah. What's that? You don't know who Dave Ramsey is, really? I know who they are, the but I've, I've never like never. heard or listened or read any of this oh. stuff. Oh, yeah. He's, I mean, he's who you would expect. He He's like a middle-aged, super, super conservative financial guy. Uh, not that mm -hmm. there's anything wrong with that, but like that comes with, with certain things. Um, so he will annoy you from time to time. But at the end of the day, like the advice is really good. And like I was saying, a lot of people who criticize his advice, you know, it's, it's, Maybe his advice isn't intended for these people because the people are like, oh, well, I can use this credit card and I pay it off every month and then I get the 5% interest. And it's like, okay, that's true. But the typical person he's talking to is not yeah. capable of doing that. They're not capable of paying off the credit card every single month. So they're going to get burned. Uh, so, of course, he doesn't he doesn't recommend it. But generally, I ignore the people who, who really criticize him because it's like his advice isn't for you. Um, if you're super smart and you and this stuff isn't applicable to you, then good for you. You don't need to be listening to it. All right, Taylor, you got any money pro tips for us? Hmm. Not really. I feel like I've been really lucky, I guess you could say, or at least, you know, compared to a lot of my friends, I went to college. Um, I came out with no student debt, which I know student debt is a big, you know, burden for people sometimes. So I feel really lucky in that regard, um, partly because I had a band scholarship, uh, which helped quite a bit in college. And then also, I'm just, I think I've just always been kind of a penny pincher, like still to this day, just like some purchases like... Like uh, just actually just yesterday, um, you know, I was reading about the PlayStation VR, which looks really cool. And it would, it would rationally, it would be, you know, no problem for me to buy a PlayStation VR. Like it would not affect my life or my children's lives or anything like right. that. But I still just, I really wrestle with like making that purchase, you know, and I still haven't bought one and I want one, but I just can't yep. bring myself to do it. So I think it's just 
kind of been my attitude. But uh, even at my first job, you know, I would just save quite a bit. Um, I think each paycheck I tried to save about $1,500. And I was making my first job, I made 56000 a year. So just to give people a reference, it's a good amount. I would try to save quite a bit, Savings. actually. Um, yeah. So I did build up um, some nice savings before um, I got married about a year later. And um, yeah, I've, I've never gotten into debt, I think. Never had a credit card. And I think, you know, nice. I just had a good situation. So I don't have any good advice because I had parents that parents that helped me out. I went to college for free, basically. And it's like got a decent job right after and didn't do anything really stupid. So uh, but right now I use wealthfront.com uh, to put uh, a decent chunk of savings in just so it's not kind of just rotting and losing money to inflation in my savings account. Yeah. And then I, of course, keep, you know, uh, emergency fund and savings. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Noth- nothing uh, fancy. You know what? I, I would say a big one, though, is is don't go and finance two new cars if you get married for, for somebody younger. <laughs> I think that's one <laughs> of the um, one of the worst possible things you can do. And it's something that just about everyone does, uh, especially in the suburbs. And it's like, okay, you're spending six or $700 a month on these two new cars for you and your, and your spouse. Think how much money uh, could be saved if you were investing that or, or just putting it in a savings account. You know, like not everyone needs a $25,000 car. You can get a $4,000 car and be good for years. And then you can save and stack that money up. Um, that's a huge one, I think. And that's one of those countercultural ones, right? Like, are you willing to be a little bit, you know, like earlier in the morning so that you guys can carpool or like have to borrow a ride from a friend once every couple of weeks because you, you know, there's only really this one circumstance where you'd need a second car. Are you willing to like be a little bit awkward or bike somewhere or take the bus? Like, are you willing to do those things? Because that could make a $600 a month difference in your finances. But are you willing to be awkward in those moments? Or is it, is it worth, you know, is that awkwardness worth 600 bucks to you basically? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, one thing you mentioned about um, savings, Taylor, I love uh, a lot of the advice that I've gotten from people is to try and increase the amount of savings, the amount of giving um, every year. Because like you assume, presumably if life goes well, you're making a little bit more money every year. Um, and so uh, often, you know, like we just expand our purchasing to match the amount of money that's coming in. And so a lot of the advice I've really appreciated from people is says, says uh, increase your savings and increase your giving. I know some people who increase their giving by 1% every year. And they've been married for like 40 years or something like that. And so they're giving away like more than half of their income. And I, I, I think that's really cool. And we, we increase it. Um, we've, we never let our, our giving go down, but we don't increase it by 1% every year. Um, but one of the things that we are trying out um, is no matter how much money we make, keep living on the same budget. So if I get a, you know, a raise or whatever, all of a sudden being just keep living the same budget and anything above that budget just ends up going into savings or paying off debt or whatever that ends up being. So like those little kind of tricks. And it's just like you said about Dave Ramsey. It's like it, there may be really, 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 you know, well, actually wise technical advice. But like if it's not stuff you're going to follow, it's not any good. But the, the, the advice that you are going to follow and that is good is a really, you know, that's that's really the sweet spot. Um, and I, and I can't believe I'm making this comparison, but it's a little bit like Laravel. Like there, are, we get a lot of well actuallying from people who don't ever build anything, who who don't actually have anybody using their projects, whatever. And like there might be these technicalities. Well, technically this, or well actually that. And it was like, okay, cool, go do this. But this is actually working for people. And I think that's the vibe I get a lot from like the Dave Ramsey stuff and a lot of this other practical advice. You might be able to like tweak things a little bit differently, but if you tweak it and then don't do it, or if you tweak it and don't people don't, don't actually feel capable of applying it, then it's really no good. So it's like really finding the thing that you're going to do and really makes, you know, makes your brain work that direction. So for sure. Okay. Last thing for the day, favorite 
comic, so comic strip or anything like that, or newspaper comic or cartoon series, um, either now or from your childhood, whatever. I got to be honest. I, I've never read a comic before. Never read a comic book Don't in your life. Don't beat me up, Matt. Nope. Never read a no, comic. No, I mean, I just started like two months ago, so <laughs> no beating up here at all. Do you, do you have one that like you always wanted to read and you just kind of never got around to it, or is it not even interesting to you? Uh, I don't know. Um, I, you know what? I wouldn't mind reading the Walking Dead comic, actually. I would say that, That'd but cool. I, just, I just never have. Uh, as what for a cartoon, um, I'm not going to do something current, but as a kid, I had to be Doug. Oh, Doug man, that's was, what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Doug was his cartoon on Nickelodeon. It was the best. I had a crush on Patty Mayonnaise, all that stuff. I used to watch that every single day after school. That's awesome. So that was my show. Yeah. All right, Taylor? Uh, definitely Doug. Doug for show. Doug was just, I feel like Doug was just really relatable. He was just kind of an everyman, you know, what they call what they call him, I guess. Um, so I liked Doug. And then uh, comic, when I was uh, in junior high and high school, I really liked that uh, Pearls Before Swine comic strip in the newspaper. It's really funny, um, you know, yeah. with the little mouse and the pig um, was pretty funny. I haven't read that in a while, though. I don't. I think it's still going, but I haven't checked it out in a while. Um, when I was a kid, Sunday papers were my favorite, and I would apparently my mom would come across me just like laughing my face off, like alone in a room reading the Sunday comics, just laughing my face off. But I don't think there's any in particular that I liked more than the others. And I never read comics as a kid, but I always was interested. So just picked it up recently. I'm not sure, but like of the print ones I have, I think my favorite is probably the new Ms. Marvel because it's this kind of fresh, modern take on superheroes. And she's this like dorky, I think Pakistani Muslim girl. And she spends her day on things like Reddit and stuff like that. So it's very kind of relevant. And there's a lot of really interesting cultural elements there. Um, and the illustration is great. Um, and it has, it's very like self-aware and like references. Like, so she's Ms. Marvel knowingly because there used to be a Ms. Marvel who's like the blonde superhero with a skirt on or whatever. So she's very knowingly very different. So it's both like it's good and it's fresh, but it's also very aware of the history of comics that's coming before it. So it's, it's, I like it a lot. Um, cartoons, I, I don't know if this is my favorite cause I know like I love Animaniacs, a lot of other things, but for some reason the animated Batman and superhero or Superman series from the nineties, we didn't have cable, so we didn't see all those cable shows, but that was on WB or whatever. I love those shows, man. Those were so excellent. I still think it's my favorite Batman of all time is that series. Yeah. That time was really, there was a lot of good stuff. That was right around the time of Darkwing Ducks and, oh, yeah. um, or Darkwing Tailspin. Duck, Tailspin. There's so much good stuff back then. You know, it's so funny if you go back now, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I'll go back like, oh, I, I used to love this. Like the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon, I was just obsessed yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. You go back and it's like, you just can't even watch it anymore because <laughs> we're adults. Like I'll, my eyes will glaze over after five minutes. But I remember being obsessed with them and waking up on Saturday morning uh, to, to catch one of the episodes in time. Can we make the Doug uh, theme song, the intro to this podcast? Oh, please. Is that possible? we can do that. I remember it. Do you remember the dog's name? Uh, Porkchop. Yeah, obviously. Porkchop. Very really, good. Really easy question. You should know. Well, I'm sorry. It's been it, probably 20 years since we've watched it. I'm a Doug Pro. <laughs> <laughs> Doug Pro, there's the podcast episode name. Nice. He's got the, the the face on right now that's like, bring it, like, give me some Doug trivia, so. <laughs> yeah, give me a hard Doug question. Up. Challenge okay, okay, me. Okay, let's do some, let's do, okay, who is, who is the bully on the show that bullies Doug? You're not being serious. This is Roger Klutz, <laughs> obviously. Oh my gosh. 
These are hard for me. It's been a long time. Um, oh man, that's brutal. Okay, here's here's a here's a mod. This I would say this is moderate. This is not really hard. But what is the the favorite band of all the kids on Doug? The Beats. The yeah, Beats. That was that was pretty easy too. I feel like. Okay. Um, can you name one song that the Beats sing? Oh man, that's actually a good, a hard one. Uh, no, I I don't think I can. What, <laughs> do you know sure one? Didn't they do one some Yodelahi Who song? Yeah, that sounds remember. familiar. This is so nerdy. I remember Mr. Dink was his neighbor, but I can't remember the name of the town. Something Bluff? Bluffington? Bluff. Yeah, it is something Bluff. Bluffington, that's it. Is that it? Okay. I'm on Wikipedia now, so okay. that's, that's all that's going on here. Cool. Okay, well, we've embarrassed I was trying to think if there's anything really good in Wikipedia, but I got nothing, so. Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure as always, and I'll see you gentlemen later. 